You're listening to the Global Sport Matters podcast. From academia to media, Kenneth Shropshire and Bill Roden explore the edges of sport, unpacking race and culture beyond the game. Over the next series of episodes, Ken and Bill examine progress versus change, a central theme outlined in Ken's book, In Black and White, Race and Sport in America. Along their journey, they will reflect on the historical moments in the context of sports today, hoping to discover new pathways towards an equitable future. Welcome to, I don't know, can we call this old heads new thoughts with, with all these uh, youngsters out here now, Bill? <laughs> all these youngsters? I mean, all. <laughs> I think I see one. <laughs> all right. Well, welcome to the Global Sport Matters show, sometimes called Old Heads New Thoughts. I'm Ken Shropshire. We've got the great Bill Roden, the great Rachel Lofton, and the great James Lofton. Oh, hey. Who needs further introduction of anybody? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. Everybody was great. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep it lean. Yeah, we'll keep it late. We'll learn more about our special guest as we go along today and and their insights. So we want to talk about a few different things, though, today. Uh, first, kind of the, the state of football as we lead into the Pro Bowl, uh, which I'm sure everybody's paying attention to, and the Super Bowl, legacy black quarterbacks, player safety, and whether or not you can kind of accidentally hit a man when he's out of bounds, especially when it's a quarterback. Talk some about the latest on DE&I in football. And especially for Bill Road, we're going to talk about flag football. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Let's let's get underway. So we're privileged today to have my longtime friend, high school rival, uh, college teammate. You can be teammates when one plays and the other doesn't. You're still teammates. <laughs> the great, the great James Lofton. J- James, thank you for joining us. First of all, well, well thank you for having me. I, I, I'm excited to do this because Bill Roden, believe it or not, is one of my broadcast literary literary uh idols that i look at and i look at what he's been able to do in his space and that's equal to what any of us do on the field oh uh, well that's uh, i'm flattered and it's awesome coming from you brother but let me let me tell you you know because uh, i also uh admired uh you know i mean obviously admired what you did during your career but i'm always fascinated what brothers do after their careers and how they get these second and third acts. And uh, I don't think we talk about that enough, but um, I really have admired uh, the type of broadcaster you've you've become and uh, what you infuse. I don't know if people pick up on it, like sort of your, 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 your humor and your, your ironic aside. (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, man, like, like, lost to be coming up with some wild shit, man, just like on the spur of the moment. <laughs> that thing is great. <laughs> well, I, I do want to say, and, and I texted you after you did this, like five years ago, when there was that receiver, I think he ended up with the uh, Washington football team who's on the uh, Colts for a long time. Uh, Garcon or whatever his name was, had the, the tilde. Yeah. yeah. And... <laughs> He caught a pass or something, and James said, 
one more reception and they're gonna give him give him that Tilda back on his name or whatever. <laughs> but I guess when he got traded, they didn't they didn't have enough white paint to put that thing over, over the sea. So yeah, who can think of that stuff on the spot? Well, that, that sort of nuance, right? It's such a <laughs> such an obscure game, and sports are that the longer you are around them, the more you notice the things that are a little quirky while you're out there watching things on the football field or the baseball diamond or the basketball court. You just, you just notice the quirkiness of all of it. So we, we've talked a lot, uh, James and, and Rob, we're going to get you in on this too, about black quarterbacks and, you know, trying to think of the, the different angle and this and that. I mean, this time it was given to us on a silver platter that this first time there's two black quarterbacks playing against each other in in the Super Bowl, which is I you know I hadn't really thought about it. In some ways, after Doug Williams won, kind of halfway kept track of, of when there was a black quarterback in, and and mm-hmm. when Tony Dungy and Lovey faced off against yeah. each other's coaches, that was a big moment. James, why don't we start off? With you, special thoughts about about this opportunity. We can take it back to you being a former quarterback if you want, but I, you know, I'm going to leave that alone if you, if you don't want to go. No, there. no, no. And, and and I love looking at it from a historical perspective because I I go back even further than you know obviously this matchup or even Doug Williams. Let's go back to when you and I were preteens, probably 12 years old, 1968. The Summer Olympics were in Mexico City. And, and the reason that it was kind of interesting is we're in Los Angeles, so it's the same time zone. So we get to see everything live as opposed to on tape that the Olympics are now. And the two participants that stood out to me, Tommy Smith, John Carlos, 1968. That same year, Marlon Briscoe becomes the first black quarterback in the AFL, playing for the Denver Broncos. He was a 14th-round pick. So you go back to Marlon Briscoe, and unfortunately he passed away last year in June. But you look at what he had to endure going in. He got a chance to play quarterback early on, then he was shifted to receiver and, you know, kind of a utility player and different things like that. And then the next year, James Shaq Harris, drafted by the Buffalo Bills, an opening day starter for the Buffalo Bills. So – you know, all the hubbub was about O.J. Simpson, but here was James Shaq Harris doing his thing. So you, you had those guys who were the, the icebreakers to start up. And then obviously Doug Williams and, and his, you know, heroic achievements and not coming out of the game once he was already injured because he knew that this stage was something that he had aspired to for so long. And, uh, you know, you talk about me being a high school quarterback. Yes, I was. And and I played against Doug Williams in the senior bowl. Hmm. And I was just, I was almost in awe of him, looking at the other sideline going, man, that's the guy from Grambling. And in my mind, from Los Angeles, and you got to remember, you don't have national news at that time. So I don't even know where Grambling is. Don't even know of it as a historical uh, standpoint. And saying that, my dad went to Prairie View. Huh. You still didn't always get those connections, especially once you move to Los Angeles, you get the Los Angeles news. And fortunately for me, when I was in high school, who was the quarterback for the LA Rams? James Shaq Harris. But I didn't connect the dots thinking, 
man, I'm a high school player. I want to go to college. If I go to college, then I can play in the pros. But that never occurred to me to think about being quarterback in the National Football League. And, and, and you know, uh, it, it's really something in that moment, we don't think about those things in that kind of way. And, and the idea of, I mean, so many of you guys, I mean, think of half of our team at Stanford were former quarterbacks. <laughs> yeah. Just, just everybody, just about everybody, except for me, I was the one fool who was a center who, that it's almost the same thing, except, you know, right. good, but almost the same thing in the sense that there were no black centers. Yeah. So what was I thinking about thinking I could be a center? It, it was, exactly. and it, 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 but, but we didn't have the, the, the wherewithal to, to say, no, nah, I better do this other thing because, you know, we just, I mean, all you, all you guys that transitioned to receivers and defensive backs, it was like, this is, this is what I want to play. This is what I can do. So it, it's, it's a different, and now we got two black quarterbacks mm-hmm. in the Super Bowl. I mean, Rob, I want to switch to you for a minute. Is, is this meaningful for you? I mean, your father's talking about this ancient history that we had to endure that's got our mentality <laughs> to really, we're excited because of this moment when, you know, it's, it's almost like, you know, the, who, the black person that invented the traffic light and the, you know, the, all these things, you know, like Black History Month. Well, here we have another Black History Month moment for us. But I, I don't know, what, what's, it, what's it mean for you? I'm very excited about it. But also hearing you both speak about this, it shows you how much representation matters. And so at this point, you know, if you're a young Black kid playing football, you can see yourself at the Super Bowl. You can see yourself as a quarterback, a quarterback excuse me. Um, but also what I love is the impact and the ripple effects. So also another first happening, Jalen Hurts' agent will be the first Black woman to represent a player in the NFL during the Super Bowl. Hmm. And so you really see the impact isn't just on the field, but off the field as well. Um, as you're seeing more diversity within all parts of the industry, you're also seeing it for Black women as well. And so for me, it's a win as a Black woman. It's a win as a Black person to see both the quarterbacks on the field. It's making it hard to figure out who to root for. But it, <laughs> but it is exciting because, you know, even in the past couple of Super Bowls, to see women on the sidelines. With this representation, young kids now can be so much more than they thought they could be. And it shows you that these things are possible. But also when you think about coaching, we know that there is a strong pipeline from being a quarterback's coach, being a former quarterback to a quarterback's coach, an offensive coordinator, and then head coach. So I'd be interested to see if in the next five, 10 years, we're seeing that pipeline become more diverse. So it's it's a big moment, and I think a win in a lot of ways and just a reflection of the progress, not complete change, but the progress that the NFL is having right now. Yeah, it's kind of it's, it is interesting. You, you raise a, a great, great point, because not only is, is Nicole, I forget her last name, his agent, but his whole team, it hurts his whole team in terms of uh, people guiding him, I believe, are black women, which, yeah. which is kind of... Which is is another show. <laughs> Interesting thing about that. I mean, you watch the uh, NBA Players Association. I mean, two black women in a row as as leaders there, and and what what that means. It might be 
Mr. Roden might have taken us through that. It might be more Freudian than I can I can actually analyze <laughs> in, in <laughs> But Bill, you you've been thinking about this this a lot and and uh for years. I mean, you know, books and, and movies and everything else, thinking about this issue of, of of the black quarterback. And then you did this work on um Lamar Jackson throughout the year. What what are your thoughts on how this this ended up? I mean, I mean the great you know, on the series that you were doing, a great story would have been Lamar ended up in the Super Bowl. Then, you know, the Pulitzer people would have been calling you, but, but oh, well, not, not this time. <laughs> oh, well, foiled again. <laughs> yeah. What, what are your uh, thoughts? Yeah, there's so many thoughts. You know, Dr. Lofton, can we call her Dr. Lofton yet? Hey, uh, manifest, manifest. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Lofton. I mean, we'll she actually this. brings up um, a lot of great points about representation. And, and I think there's so many there's so many ways to go with this. Um, you know, if we start with the two black quarterbacks and I think that gets into representation too, because even that, I mean, you know, when you say African-American, we come from so many different, you know, our identification is so vast. If you look at uh, Jalen Hurts, both parents, African-American uh, from Houston, uh, his grandmother, you know, then you look at, at, um, uh, Kansas city and, um, Patrick, uh, Mahomes, Mahomes, you know, biracial, uh, you know, mom, white, dad, black. And, you know, back in the day, we just would consider, you know, guys like that. Hey man, they're just light skinned brothers. You know, there's no, you know, but again, that's a whole different slice, but we all are considered in the same pie, the same slice. So I think even that's great. And then um, I do think, I remember uh, when I was working on, on a book, I was speaking to a uh, sixth grade class. And um, after I finished, you know, this young little, you know, young, young black girl, you know, kind of raised her hand. She said, yeah, Mr. Roden, that's all well and good, but who was the first, who was the first white player to integrate the NBA? And <laughs> think about that question. She asked me, who was the first white player to integrate the NBA? And I stopped, you know, but it occurred to me that for her generation, and I think this is true moving forward, for a lot of young black people, the fact that the NBA was like 70-something percent black and the NFL was 70% black, this is almost like the way it's always been. They have no idea of what it took to get it that way. And I think the fact that you have two African-American quarterbacks, uh, I think for a lot of kids, and they've seen this whole thing of black quarterbacks for the past, I don't know, six, seven, eight years, however long it's been, that's just the way it's always been. This whole idea that, you know, black people being switched and all that kind of stuff is almost like fiction. So I think it's, I, I look at it in terms of a, evolution. And uh, I mean, the last thing I'll say is uh, when I was in high school, um, uh, that was, that was long, longer ago than me and you, James. Yeah, it was a long time ago. They, they walked, actually had high school. In both directions, to and fro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I remember uh, um, I went out there, I, I had a substitute teacher, his name was Gloucester Richardson. And, you know, he was wow. part of it. And, and I was headed to uh, Morgan State. You know, Willie Lanier was already there. So he told me, you know, well, hey, a group of us work out. 
uh, in the evening. Why don't you come out and work out with us? So I worked out, and uh, there were a lot of guys there, you know. And uh, there's old, there's a there's a brother who was throwing passes at everybody, you know. And uh, we didn't talk, but it's only later that I realized that the brother who was throwing passes was Willie Thrower. I had no idea, you know. And when I found out about Willie Thrower and his place in history, uh, you know, how he played with the Chicago Bears, he was the first uh, African-American to actually uh, enter a game. This was like 1958 or something. So to me, when you look at through that prism, and, you know, James, you mentioned Marlon Briscoe and all that. Uh, when I was in 1968, uh, you know, uh, Morgan, my team played Shaq and Grambling at Yankee Stadium. Mm-hmm. But what was significant for me that year was that the Oakland Raiders drafted Eldridge Dickey out of Tennessee State on the first round. And that was historic. That had never happened before. You know, and that's how bad this guy was that, you know, he was he could throw left, could throw right, he punted, kicked extra point, and they drove, they drafted him ahead of Ken Stabler. And eventually, you know, the inevitable happened. They switched Stabler, they they switched Dickey to a wide receiver. And of course, he never was the same. So I guess, you know, having two guys, two black men playing quarterback, it's important when you think of all the black folks who, who wanted to do this, who wanted to play the position, but because they were too athletic, they were too good, and they didn't fit into this box, they never got that opportunity. So I think that we need to celebrate this moment. And as Dr. Lawson was talking about, we're talking about this isn't, this isn't the stopping point. This is like an evolution. And maybe in a few years we're talking about the two first time the two black team presidents, <laughs> you know, uh, are in the Super Bowl, and maybe in forty years, two black team owners are are going at it. So it's you know, it's, I guess it's about you know, you know, tote that bar, lift that bar, celebrate, go back out to the field, <laughs> you know, and continue, <laughs> and continue to grind because that's what our existence in this country is about is just an existential journey that is really never over. So. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> James, you got you got another thought on that too. I, I just want to kind of tag on to what was being said because when we think about the quote black quarterback, sometimes we get enamored with this athletic quarterback. All the quarterbacks that are coming into the league now are quote athletic. Some can run a little bit better than others, and it was really interesting. I know that Bill has been working on a piece about Lamar Jackson. And it was interesting. I had Lamar a couple of times his rookie year. I had him the opening game this year. And, and I remember saying during one of the broadcasts, because I had heard other broadcasters talk about how athletic he was and how much, how well he could run. And I said, well, you take a quarterback who drops back five steps into the pocket and he's taught to read, where's the strong safety? Where is the middle linebacker? And that's going to determine the coverage. You take Lamar Jackson, and he goes down the line of scrimmage. He's two yards away from the outside linebacker. I said, Lamar, what are you looking at at that point? He said, I'm reading the tackle who's blocking the defensive tackle. I'm reading the middle linebacker who's coming up. I'm looking at that outside linebacker. I'm trying to see the corner. I'm looking at the safety. He's processing more information than the, quote, pocket quarterback does when he drops back for five steps. 
And I said, when you start talking about who's the smartest player in the league, not the most athletic, Lamar Jackson may be the smartest player in the NFL to do what he does for that offense because you've seen other teams try and run some of the things that he has to do. They don't do it very well because their quarterbacks aren't equipped to do it. Not that they're not equipped to do it athletically. They're not as smart as Lamar Jackson is. You know, that's, that's fascinating. I, I want to throw this in there too. And, and I mentioned it in passing bigger moment than Dungy versus Lovey Smith. The idea that we've got two quarterbacks or same, equal, different. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, go ahead. Dungy Smith was pretty big. That was pretty big because those guys, even though it's a quarterback driven league, you can talk about the head coaches and, and they become Super Bowl winning head coaches. And we hadn't had one of those before. And we had had Doug Williams already up on the podium. We've had Patrick Mahomes win it. We've had Russell Wilson win it. So two going up against each other. Maybe it would be big if all four were in the conference championships. And we did have three out of four when Josh Jackson entered the game. Right. Why don't we talk about the all-black offensive line? I'm, I'm distressed. We're talking about the offensive line a little bit more. So, Bill, what about you? What were your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I thought that was – in fact, I, I spoke with uh, Tony earlier today because I, I, I'm actually – that's one of the pieces I'm going to write going into the um, – uh, into the Super Bowl uh, about, uh, you know, he looked at – you know, I forget when that was, but when he faced Lovey, you know, two black guys – and now, X years later, we've got two black quarterbacks. And the question, I guess, is what's the larger meaning of this? You know, um, you know what, what, what does it all, what does it all mean? And, uh, and this is probably going to be awkward, but I'll say it anyway because I'm among friends. But <laughs> Just, Wait, how many listeners do you think we have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I know. Like, what, what do they say? Uh, don't tell anybody. This is all off the record. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, this, this thing that happened in Memphis really is kind of haunting me. You know, when you had, you know, a bunch of, of black, black police officers beating the hell out of a young black man. And, you know, for years, the whole narrative has been, you know, white police officers beating the hell out of a black guy. And that's been the source of the, you know, you know the protest and all that and all that. So now, and, and then, you know, Memphis... I think the police department, like 58% black, because there had been this whole effort, civil rights effort, to get more black representation, you know, on the police force. And you get to a point of, you know, what you talked about representation, where, you know, you've got this thing with all, where, where five black men can beat the hell out of a black kid, and you're stopping to wonder, what the hell is this all about? You know, I mean, what what are we talking about? Are we talking about something systemic or brainwashing? And so, and I know it's not the same as having two black head coaches or two, you know, black head coaches uh, or two black quarterbacks or a black president of the United States. Idea, what is it all, what does this mean? And is it supposed to mean something in terms of our evolution and our growth from 1619 to now and trying to get African-Americans in all these positions of power and, and in football, you know, uh, in a prestigious, you know, position. But what is it? What is it all supposed to mean? I mean, do we do we 
have we lost focus or are we at a point where it doesn't really mean anything, where it's all just all good, you know, where the fact that you have two black head coaches and two black quarterbacks, hey, man, you know, doesn't really mean anything. I think it should mean something, but for some reason, that thing in Memphis really threw me for a loss. I'm like, man, do we have to take a step and kind of redefine what, where we are and what being African-American is about? And what is supposed to be about in terms of our journey? I mean, I, I, I'll i stop, but I'm just, uh, and, and again, maybe there's no answer, but that's what I think about when we think about two black head coaches, two black quarterbacks, yeah. maybe next five years, two black team presidents. I mean, what does it mean when you become the team president of of, a, of, a, of the, the Vikings or something and then you hire a white coach? It, what, is that, you, yeah. I mean, what does it mean, you know? Well, let, let me let me have... Rachel kind of take us take us through that, and then James, you'll close us out on this this segment. But I do want to say, and 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 uh, James, you, you'll know this, and 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 Raul, you've heard this. This does tend to be the growing up in L.A., growing up in Chicago show sometimes. But I, when when I was eleven, somebody came up, a, a grown man in a suit came up and, and grabbed me and my bike as I was riding around the neighborhood. And I couldn't get away. And then he flashes some badge. And it was like, you know, Roy Rogers badge. I couldn't tell what kind of badge it was, but I guess he was trying to tell me he was a cop. And that, that was his point. He says, you know, where'd you get this bike from? And the long story short, the bike shop, my father just bought the bike from was right across the street. We went across the street and and the cop said, oh, oh shit, okay, little N-word, get out of here. And he was a black cop. I mean, my first real encounter with a cop in LA was a black cop. So I have from, and it's, and it's, some of my best friends are cops. So I say all that stuff, but, but in my mind, it's, it is the, as they say, the police. So I, I, I hear you, Bill, on, on, on the representation. Some, you know, some of this is not, is not necessarily new information uh, for some of us, but, but that, that's also part of your point is, you know, what does it, what does it really all mean? but Dr. Lofton to be. (laughs) (laughs) Um, For me, and especially when thinking about Memphis, which is just heartbreaking, but I look at it as an organizational culture issue. You have this systemic toxic culture that is pervasive. But when I think about the NFL and we're saying, is this enough? Is this progress? Is this change? I'm often wondering about the organizational culture. When we are having these black head coaches, what type of culture are they stepping into? Um, what type of environment are they being fostered in? And are they given the tools to succeed? So even when I look at what happened in Memphis, you know, there's so many questions, but obviously on an organizational level, something is wrong. And that is very clear. And so I think as we as black people make our way into these spaces, we're not just challenging them with our presence, but we're also challenging traditional organizational culture, whatever that culture may be. And so with, you know, having these two black quarterbacks, again, the progress not changed because you do wonder what's happening behind the scenes. You wonder, is this going to be a one-off? And for me, I hope that this is a start, not a one-off. I hope to see it again. I hope to see another quarterback of color that isn't black being in a Super Bowl as well. Um, but I do think we're at a shift, especially within the NFL, where you are seeing these changes in organizations. Um, 
I've always admired the Raiders for being very progressive. They have the first female president ever who also happens to be Black, Sandra Douglas Morgan. And so looking at that, there is an organizational culture there that fosters diversity. And you don't see it across the NFL. You see it in some teams, but not always. And so with all this and these changes in progress, I'm always hoping it's not the only, it's not a one-off, it's not a checkbox, but that we are actually making organizational change, culture changes that are more inclusive, diverse, and progressive. James, your final thoughts on this one? You know, it is hard to go after your daughter when she is so eloquent. And, uh, <laughs> but I'm going, I'm going, okay, all that money for education was well spent. <laughs> I'm excited about that. So just to, to attach it to um, football terminology, we think of coaches and their coaching tree. And we look at a successful coach and the other coaches who are under them and how that coaching tree fosters. So the situation in Memphis, the police department is a bad coaching tree. And so what we have, we got to break those branches somehow. And it's interesting when, when I look at coaches who get hired in the NFL, oh, and they, they don't have nearly the experience of somebody who's been around a long time and worked their way up. It's interesting. But so that's kind of what happened in Memphis. You look at what the police, happened to the police department. They talked about how young those officers were. And so they, they had no guidance. They didn't have the proper training. Um, and so they, they came from a bad, a very bad coaching tree. Mm. All right. Yeah. It's tough, tough, tough to, uh, to move on from that. Thank you. Thank you. Lofton's the Lofton household is doing <laughs> some, uh, <laughs> visit the Lofton dinner table and hear some heavy conversations. <laughs> um, you know, which gets us to, to player safety and, you know, Demar the, the Hamlin. We we've we've kind of lived through that for uh, for the past period of time. From you know your your old team Buffalo, and and then we you know to continue on the quarterback piece, we saw um, Mahomes get tackled by Joseph Asai on on the sidelines, and another potential injury occurring. And I didn't want to talk about that for a moment. But there's a lot of conversation about the, the kind of health issues and, and, I guess, more injury proneness that some of our African-American quarterbacks have had. I don't know if that's factual. This is definitely more, you know, uh, sports ca- cre- sportscaster without the data barbershop kind of credibility in terms of is, is it true or not. But I, but I wonder what the thoughts are on, on that. And also, you know, I'm also curious about any thoughts about that sideline moment. I, I have my own, which I'll, I'll preserve for a moment, whether or not there was anything nefarious about, about that tackle occurring. But, but let's go to quarterback injuries first and, and, and then maybe related to that tackle. I'll, I'll, I'll defer to Lofton. Uh, who pushed Mahomes? Is he you talking about Lynch? Is he still is he still allowed in Cincinnati? <laughs> you know? uh, okay, so so let's let's take the, the game and, and kind of put it into uh two days before, 48 hours before we head off to Kansas City for the Cincinnati Bengals offense. 
what are we going to do? We're going to get after Patrick Mahomes because he's a little injured. We're going to keep him in the pocket. We're not going to let him escape. We're going to take hits on him when, when those hits are legal. And so all of that is, is, is in your DNA, in your brain going into that ball game. So late in the game, you understand, hey, we got to keep them out of field goal position. We don't have a few ticks left on the clock. And at that point, I think you get so close to the boundary that you're, you're not thinking, if I push him, this is going to be bad. This is going to turn out bad for my team, for me, for everybody else, all of the above. I, I had a similar play happen. Uh, I think it was Iowa State versus Nebraska. And there was a middle linebacker by the name of Carlos Polk for Nebraska. And this is back in the 19, late 1990s. And Carlos gets blocked by the freshman fullback. He's running away from the fullback. And the fullback clips him on the back of the ankle, breaks his ankle, and he falls into the seventh round with the uh, San Diego Chargers. And the reason I know this is because I know Carlos now. So when we come back from commercial break, I'm going to take it out of commercial break. And I'm going to roast this. It's a cheap shot. And, and it's much more egregious than what we saw against Patrick Mahomes. He tackles him on the back of the ankle. So when we come out, I'm, I got it. So we have a two-and-a-half-minute commercial break. Right before we get ready to come back, the director goes in my ear and he goes, remember, his parents are watching. <laughs> oh, man. So now I have to go, Joe Blow, the freshman fullback from Iowa, he's been told all week long, you've got to block Carlos Polk. You've got to block Carlos Polk. He doesn't even realize Carlos Polk is running away from him. So you got to kind of soften the blow. And the same way I look at the guy from the Bengals. He doesn't realize he's one step onto the white. He All he knows is he's chasing him. He's trying to keep him out of field goal range. And unfortunately, he made a bad mistake. And, and it is the way the game is called now. Once that player gets into the white and is going away from the playing field, not when it's real tight and it looks like he's still going up the field, you can't tell. But once he's going out of bounds – Hands off of them. Yeah. Well, you know, by that time, too, th- there's, there's a general, there's this undercurrent that the fix was in. Remember, I mean, even before that, you know, right? <laughs> with, with, with the, uh, you know, earlier in the game when uh, the, the Kansas City had like three opportunities. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, you know, but I mean, uh, it, it's, it, 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 you know, I think that getting back to this whole idea of, of imagery, uh, and the elevation of the black quarterback, Mahomes was legendary. He is now legendary. Yes. You know, he's legendary because all week we talked about what? Could he walk? Could he even limp? Could he even, you know, could he even play? And we had day by day. So now, you know, and clearly you saw him out there limping. And again, this is something that, and you know from the broadcast booth, this is one of those traits that was is b- beloved about the white quarterback, you know, courage. You know, fearlessness, playing on one leg. You know what they want Lamar to do. <laughs> yep, you know, yep. and I think that if if Mahomes was not legendary before, he's legendary now. And I think that I don't know. You, you guys can tell me if I'm wrong. That's been the one in this whole evolution of the black quarterback. That's the one thing that's been missed is to be talked about like they talk about Brett Favre and all the other guys. Mm-hmm. In terms of this 
legendary performer, how tough they are, how brave they are, how courageous they are. <laughs> and that's what they've been forced to do with Mahomes. They've been showering all the accolades that had previously been reserved to for white quarterbacks. And, and I think that's the same thing that has to happen to the black coach. We've never had that black coach who's been talked about in reverential returns, like they talk about Lombardi, like they talk about uh, Belichick, you know? So, and, and, you know, we were talking about representation, that kind of language is important. You know, that's, that's really important. So, um, you know, uh, I, I, you know, I mean, I had nothing to do with him being pushed out of bounds, but I just added, added to the legend, yeah, added to his legend. And, and again, remember, had that happened in 1958, you know, it would have been, a, you know, had a had a white linebacker push like Sandy Stevens, you know, out of bounds like that. It would have been a whole nother discussion about was this somehow racial, but now it was just a stupid play, you know. Yeah, I, I want to, and we'll go in, in uh, alphabetical order with the Loftons this time. But 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 I had um, the same feeling as James in the moment. I mean, much uh, as always, much you know, he's on TV, does this for a living, much better articulated than than I'm going to do. But but in that moment, I'm I'm sure he didn't have a clue where he was, and that this was going to be problematic. And it, it's just, if you are that, and, and that's one of the, the problems of being that deep into the game is I, my, what, number one is I got to stop this guy in, in this moment. And you know, who knew the, the white came up and it, even the idea that it wasn't, you know, it was a push, not, not a tackle kind of thing. Same, same thing. I got to get him out of bounds because this guy can turn a corner. Um, Which he'd I, already done, by the way. He'd already turned the corner, so you failed. So, so there is a little little nuance because I did, did see him at, at uh, by the, his locker after the game, saying, "You know," and I also wanted to make sure, um, if I could, I want to make him going backwards as opposed to forward for the timeout thing. So, so there's a lot going on, but again, it's kind of like James was saying. There's a lot you have to think about in that moment that that you know, to somebody just sitting there drinking a beer is not thinking about all you see, you see, they got all those magical lines and yellow lines, all this stuff. You got all kinds of guidance going on on the field. You don't have all that. So uh, James, and then. So so just real quick for me and, and Bill, who's a football historian. I love occasions that happen that uplift people. And, and remember Byron Lefwich when he's at Marshall, and he could, couldn't walk. And his offensive lineman had to carry him down the field so that he could take the next snap. So that, those are historic and heroic performances right there. And then from coaching standpoint, I really have to go to Mike Tomlin and this year's Pittsburgh Steelers. And, and I don't remember if they were five and eight during the season, but the next loss was going to make him have his first losing season ever. And for all of us who are Mike Tomlin fans, we didn't want that to happen. What happens? They win four in a row to close the season out. He trots off nine and eight. He has never, ever, never, ever, and might even say it two more times, never, ever, <laughs> ever, ever had a losing season. And there were still people in the course of this past year calling for his, his job. So Mike Tomlin, 
special coach, Byron Lefwich, special hero, maybe at the collegiate level, and uh, two guys that, that I, I really enjoy working with as a broadcaster and being around. Ra, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so Bill kind of touched on this a little bit, but the power of language and how we talk about these athletes. And I will say, Dad, I'm happy you're one of the voices people hear. Because even all that story you gave us of how you wanted, you know, to tell us about this young man, but then your producer said his parents are there. So you changed up what you and said. You're intentional with your words. And I think from a child of an athlete, a child of a coach, it's hard when you have people in the stands booing the person you love on the field. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't know, like, yes, that is someone's baby. And I remember when you were with the Chargers, when you did not make it to the Super Bowl, um, <laughs> being a, <laughs> wasn't the most winningest, wasn't a winning season every season, but hearing people boo or negative chance, it hurts on a personal level because that's the person you love who's doing their best. And I think people forget that no matter what it is, these kids, excuse me, young men are out here doing their best. And dad, I was wondering for you, were there ever those moments where you didn't quite make a catch and you think to yourself, did this, did this, did this cost us the game? Because I think about that young man and what he must be experiencing now and the shame and the thoughts and the, did I lose this for them? I was trying to help the team, but it backfired. And so I was wondering if you could share ever where you had those moments or what goes through your head when you have a failure. Yeah. And, and that young man's, um, Mistake was was on a huge stage and even got berated by his own teammate as they're going up the tunnel into the locker room. His, his teammate is behind him yelling at him. So I'm surprised that they didn't come to blows at that point. But I never had a moment like that. But the older I get, the better my stories are. So when I played for the Packers, we had a 5-3 split. And by that, I mean, we played five games in Green Bay. We played three games in Milwaukee. So when we played in Milwaukee, we would go down on a bus, and then our wives, we, we could drive back with them, the two-hour drive from Milwaukee to Green Bay. And, you know, we might talk about the game or stuff like that. And, and your mom, who is the most wonderful person in the world, we just celebrated our 42nd wedding anniversary yesterday. Oh, wow. That's great. That's and great. Uh, so, so Beverly is, is, is biggest... one second. And ladies and gentlemen, don't ever follow James on stage or anywhere else. <laughs> don't be somewhere where you have to give your wife a toast or something. And don't be in the room where he's giving his wife a toast because the bars just gets raised so high. It's, <laughs> it's such, I mean, I can be, I cannot see James and Beverly for, for months at a time. And I'll be doing something with my wife and she will say some version of, well, I don't know, would James do that? <laughs> but I'm sorry, go ahead with your, with your story. <laughs> so, just to finish it up, she is so positive, <laughs> so caring. And, and so we're, we're probably about halfway there. And she goes, you know that play at the end of the third quarter, did, did the ball get tipped? <laughs> you know, that, that was her way of saying, you dropped it. What happened? <laughs> so, so you you when you when you play a position like receiver or quarterback, and the ball's in your hands or it's not in your hands when it's supposed to be in your hands, you kind of learn to live with that. When you are a defensive tackle, 
and you're supposed to rush the passer and stop the run, and really your name isn't supposed to be uttered during the course of the ball game. And then you make a faux pas like this young man did, and then you just become a central figure. And you know, we talked about you know what what happens to the fans in Cincinnati. There will be some nasty fans that'll come after him, but but his teammates will rally around him and I believe support him because they realize even though that was a critical play, they could have made plays also during the course of the ball game that would have changed the outcome. There's a great humanity moment though. I mentioned the the by the locker interview with, with, with Joseph Asai um, and one of his teammates is standing there with him as the press is trying to talk to him and the, and the teammate not obviously not as you said James not, not the teammate that was yelling at him going hey, not that guy yeah. but this one was uh, sort of you know monitoring the questions and kind of uh, shutting reporters down that were being a little too crass about the moment and when you see him when you see Osai I mean the humanity of this is somebody's child yeah really really comes through in in that moment I'm not some bad guy I just you know at worst case I'm, I made a mistake. Yeah. Although somebody in the locker room could have played BB Kings, nobody loves me but my mother. So let's 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 close out with a, a conversation about uh, flag football, and then any any closing thoughts that that, that, that anybody has to, to to bring it to the end. But so this year, <laughs> the Pro Bowl goes through iteration number. I don't know what this is. Pro Bowl starts off, James, you recall, used to be in L.A. Uh, yeah. when we were kids. And then, you know, eventually evolves to Hawaii, then the, the, the Orlando thing, then Vegas, and now flag football. Um, <laughs> what, what, what do we think about this? I know. A couple, Bill is a couple of years ago, <laughs> a couple of years ago, it became a less contact than in previous years contact type of football game. And so you watch some of the, quote, Pro Bowl records being set. So you'd have a game that mirrored the NBA All-Star game where you'd have a game that was 150 to 148. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so that that aspect was taken out of it. And the other thing that the NFL did is they moved it from after the Super Bowl to before the Super Bowl. So you then took out the – half a dozen Pro Bowl players on each team who made it to the Super Bowl and they weren't going to play. And then they were replaced by replacement players and they were replaced by other replacement players. So it got watered down to the point where that wasn't the honor that it was supposed to be. And I know as a Hall of Fame selector, one of the things we look at are Pro Bowls. And one of the things that we're now trying to look at is Pro Bowls that you were actually nominated to when you were, when the game was first initiated not when you were the alternate of the alternate of the alternate. But as far as flag football is concerned, I am a big, huge supporter of flag football and more so for the, the kids before they get to high school. Uh, I, I know these kids look awfully cute with a helmet on and shoulder pads when they're six years old. And there are about two of them running around who are just faster than everybody else's kids. And everybody's worried that they're older than their other kids. But they don't need that at that point. Play, play other sports, play a little basketball, play a little baseball, play soccer. And you can still hone in on football probably by the time you become a freshman in high school. So that's fun. And I look at rugby and what they've done. Normally there are 15 players on a rugby field. Rugby seven is a real popular game that's played more so that people like to watch because the field is spread out. 
the NBA, five on five, we're used to that. But now there's that three on three basketball league with all the old guys who couldn't run up and down the court. So the flag football game is a lot of fun. And I think a lot of fun because you can play that boys and girls together probably easily all the way through middle school. And I, I know when Rachel was young, she was the fastest in her grade. Not the fastest girl, the fastest in her grade. And she came home and she said she wanted to play football. And I don't think she understood that she couldn't play past what they were playing in middle school at recess because you didn't have the league at that time. Now you're going to have that league collegiately. You're going to have it at the high school level. And there probably will be some scholarship type awards given to those athletes because it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. I mean, I could have been the greatest thing the NFL has ever seen, but we'll never know. But while we might be giving the side eye to flag football at the Pro Bowl on an international stage, flag football is blowing up. Um, right now, flag football is up for the 28 Olympics. Uh, the International Federation of American Football has provisional recognition from the International Olympic Committee. They have 74 members, meaning 74 different countries that are participating in both tackle and flag football for both men and women. And with it, you're seeing not only just the growth of American football, but the growth of American football for girls um, and women. And when I think about it in context of the NFL, Jennifer Walter, Katie Sowers, Callie Brownson, who's now with the Browns, all of them played for the U.S. Women's National Team as part of the international, fo international football. And so they all also made it to coaching positions in the NFL. So not only are you giving the more kids opportunity to play and have fun and be able to participate in the sport, you're also creating jobs. Uh, there are multiple countries that have women as the presidents of their national football federations, uh, Poland, France, Great Britain, Brazil, all of them have women at the top of their national federation. And so for me, it's something wonderful to see even though, again, we might be giving the side eye to it in the U.S. on a global scale, it's so popular. And I think it'd be really exciting not to only to see football in the Olympics, but to see football for both men and women in the Olympics. Come on, Bill. Join the love. Come on, <laughs> Join the love. No, I like it. No, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I like it. Um, you know, um, uh, I went over to Berlin, I mean, over to Munich this uh, in November to watch um, uh, Tampa Bay play Seattle. And, you know, at halftime, that was a halftime quote-unquote entertainment. They had flag football. You know, the women, uh, two teams of women playing flag football. So I thought, yeah, I, I think it's great. Uh, you know, right out of after Morgan, I played in the flag football league to my coach, Mr. Howard, said when I told him uh, about flag football, the flag football league that I, I was in, I didn't tell him I was in it, I said, what is this flag football? And Mr. Howard, who, who played for the Cleveland Browns, said something like, yeah, that's one of those guys who never made it, you know? <laughs> 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 so I didn't tell him that. But no, I, like, I like it a lot. But I was just curious, Jane, at, what's the mentality of the pro guys who are going to play flag football? Uh, what do you think is going to be that mentality? And if this was your first time makes it a pro bowl and it was flag football, would you see it the same way? So I'm just, I mean, I'm really fascinated to see what the game looks like, but I was just more thinking about, 
you know, guys who have played the game and played at that level, what they think about the NFL basically finds that, you know what, we can't duplicate <laughs> the, 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 the violence for real. So let's just play flag football. Well, if you, if you take, I bet, half of the receivers in the league who were under five years into the league, they were scouted to college probably during the summer when they were in a passing league, when they right. were playing flag football. So these skills translate. The, the NFL's Pro Bowl game had turned into a, a fun fest. And the, the, the NFL had to acknowledge that. And so this game is going to be about fun. Um, and and, and I, I hate doing this, but when I played and, you know, you had to walk across the living room to change the channel and the TV was in black and white, when I played, that Pro Bowl was, was so important because the dollars that you could earn winning the game, you could get $2,500 if you won. And you only got $1,250. Yeah, I'm right about that. $1,250 if you lost. So that was the initial payout. And so whenever the fourth quarter rolled around, because, you, you know, the score, scores weren't out of whack, it was that game turned into a slugfest in that fourth quarter. And so now you cannot give these players enough money to go play an extra game. Remember when we were also kids, Bill? You had yeah. the game between the Super Bowl where the teams that lost in the yeah, right. and the NFC Championship played each other. Now, could we have gotten those teams to go out and play each other this coming week? Of no. Of course. No. I mean, you, because once you enter the postseason, you're playing for a fraction of the money, but you're playing for that historical thing about being Super Bowl champions. Yeah. Well, I'll be watching, just so you'll know. I'll be... I'll be watching. I won't be there, but I will be watching. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've got to say, you know, I, I played nothing but flag up until high school. I, mean, yeah. I, I wasn't allowed to play anything else. I can tell you that, that was the most fun, even in a very successful high school career. But playing that flag was was so much fun. Yeah. And and guess what? Nobody was getting hurt. Yeah. I mean, little scratches or whatever else. But it was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot, and you figured out how to cheat in flag football too, which is a whole nother. <laughs> well, you were guarding your flags, flag guarding. <laughs> but fun, I think we've lost sight of fun for kids, yeah. um, and I think flag football, even on an economic stance, provides a lot of opportunity and access. So around the world, they're sending these flag football kits. So you know, it's little pennies, the flags, a couple cones, and kids can play no matter what their economic background is. Whereas if you want to play tackle, pads, helmet, all the equipment's expensive. Um, so I'm excited. And Bill, while, yes, these players might not be up for it, I bet you if they had the opportunity to play in the Olympics, it'd be a different discussion. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. I mean, I think, you know, it's uh, it's fine. And uh, I, I like the idea that it's uh, it's gender neutral. You know that you know everybody can play. I like I like that a lot. So I don't think there's a downside to it. You know, um, the NFL will just continue to print money because I'm sure they'll you know be behind it. So no, I don't think there's anything. Uh, th- there's no downside. Like I'm really intrigued by it. I'm just curious to see what it's going to look like. What will there be injuries? 
will, if people really get into it, will there be, you know, because you can make anything more physical than it's supposed to be, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, you know, how you stop people, you, mm-hmm. you forearm yeah. people so you can like grab their, <laughs> you know, give them a forearm shiver so you can grab their flag, you know, or if you're a running back, you know, can you imagine like, uh, who's running back from uh, Green Bay, uh, Jones? Uh, yeah, Aaron Jones. You, you imagine trying to, you know, try to get his, uh, you know, so no, I think it will be great. Uh, I do think the competitive nature will still be there. A couple years ago, I believe it was at the Super Bowl in Houston, um, the women of the NFL actually had a flag football game that week. So it was a, primarily wives, but also some daughters got to play. I was one of them. And it started out as fun. It ended with a lot of ice and bandages. <laughs> we got extremely competitive. Uh, you know, it was all laughs and giggles before the game, but it, it, it turned out to be a lot of fun and a lot of hurt at the same time. But I loved it. Well, I'm, I'm getting the hook in terms of, of time, but let, let's close this out with any, any thoughts on uh, the coming week, coming weeks leading up to the Super Bowl too, Jane, especially since we got you today. I know I'm, uh, I haven't quite figured out what I'm watching this weekend. I guess maybe I will watch a little of this uh, flag football stuff and see, see how that plays out. But, but the build up to the Super Bowl is going to be, going to be interesting. And I am kind of curious from the first topic, what's going to be made of, the, of two black quarterbacks. Is, is that going to be, Bill, as we talked about last week, more of a you know barbershop kind of the black people conversation or, or does it elevate and, and really become a bigger issue in terms of conversation? But any, any final thoughts, uh, Ra, James? Rachel, we'll start with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I'm just excited for the Super Bowl as a whole. I think it it brings so many people together. And so I think while it is special to me as a black person, I think just for any person of color to really also see themselves represented in different ways. Um, Bill brought up the point about Patrick Mahomes being biracial. And so when I look at my niece and nephews who are biracial, I'm like, oh, they have the same hair as him. They look like him. And so even for biracial, multiracial kids, there's more than just Drake now to look up to. Um, So I think it is a unifier and I'm excited for the game to come. Did you did you message Dad who Drake is or did, did he? Ooh, ooh. <laughs> the the uh, referees will take one point off. <laughs> okay, get back, James. Go, going in, in the Super Bowl. Final thoughts. Uh, I had a chance early, I think, in my NFL career to meet running back from the Dallas Cowboys by the name of Dwayne Thomas, mm. and I think if I use the word mercurial, that. That's the type of figure he was. Very kind of out there, you know, you know, walk to a different drummer and all that. And he said, if 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 it's the Super Bowl, why do they have one every year? Yeah. It is a it is a huge game. You love trying to get to it. And as a player, you don't realize how big it is until the next year. And they're playing the highlights from a game that you either won in or you lost in, and they play those same highlights year after year after year after year. So from that historical standpoint, huge matchup, and and it won't get lost on the viewership. Yeah, and I guess the only thing I'll say is that, you know, for a change, 
you could, you, you know, uh, everybody goes to the beach, you know. Uh, I remember, you know, my first, my first uh, exposure to watching football games was my dad, you know, back in, you know, way back. And we would always cheer for the team with the most black players. And yeah. it was just given. That's what you did. You cheer for the team with the most black players. And uh, here we are with, you know, you got two brothers, a quarterback. And I'm like, man, you know, everybody wins. This is great, you know. But I think that is a good question, Ken, in the barbershop. Who's the barbershop pulling for? The brothers in the barbershop in Philly. And, you know, are you pulling for Kansas City? Or you could, you know, and, and Hurts? Well, don't, don't I mean, go to the barbershop in Philly. Let's go to Chicago. That's Philly, you know Yeah, well, yeah, forget. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, I just think it's great. And uh, as we, you know, we began the conversation talking about uh, maybe not change, really not change, but progress. So I think it's great. We should celebrate it. Uh, and let's just keep pushing, you know, let's just keep pushing. But I don't think we should take it for granted. All right. Well, this has been Old Heads New Thoughts, Global Sport Matters podcast. Rachel Lofton kind of uh, mitigated the complete old head situation. So we're <laughs> glad to have her and, and our other special guest, James Lofton, the Hall of Famer. Take care. All right. See you, everybody. Global Sport Matters podcast is a production of the Global Sport Institute at Arizona State University. Our senior coordinator of digital content is Brendan Clean. Our manager of strategic initiatives is me, Kendall Jones. And our marketing and event assistants are Luke Padway and Aiden Corrales. Find and follow us on Twitter. We're at Global Sport MTRS.